This episode is the first in three to cover precision medicine, and today we're extremely fortunate to have Nick Jacobs with us as our guest. Nick is a former hospital administrator, he's the founder of two research institutes, and he's got a background in music. All right, so Nick, can you tell me where we are today right now? Uh, we're sitting in a dream. Uh, I was a founder of an organization called the Winver Research Institute, and that's where we're seated. Uh, I had this idea back in uh, 1999 and um, decided that I was going to be the genetic analytic center for breast cancer for the Department of Defense and um, presented that idea and it gained traction and we added proteomics and informatics and histopathology and, and now it's a central repository for, a bio repository for um, cancer for Walter Reed uh, National Military Medical Center. So when you're saying 1999, that place is a bit back, right? And I think a lot of people, when they think about precision medicine um, and DNA research, they, they think it's a pretty new concept. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting for me because I was interviewing to be the CEO of the National Research Hospital in Omaha, Nebraska. And I asked this, the president of Boys Town, who was a Jesuit priest, I said, why do you call this a National Research Hospital? And he said, I had this idea and I hired three PhDs and three more and three more. And we have 38 PhDs and we're a genome center. And it was in 1992. And I, I don't have a background in science. And I don't have a background in medicine. I, I thought maybe he was talking about the things you put in your garden for all I knew. And I said, explain this to me. And so he took me downstairs and showed me that they were working on cracking childhood deafness and blindness through the study of genetics. And it just was seared in my mind. It stayed there. And um, seven years later, um, I had an opportunity to get some grants and they confronted me with, what do you want to do with the grants? And I said, I want to be the Genome Center for Breast Cancer for the Department of Defense. That's how it started. And so how, how mature is it now? Like if you say, if you depict me a picture, maybe in the future first, what genomics could mean for society in general, and then maybe looking at how it is now, how mature is this technology compared to that dream? So, <clears throat> so when we got involved, we got heavily involved in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, new equipment was being created on a, you know, practically a monthly basis, and and we had equipment here that was one of two in the world in some cases. And one of the things that we quickly learned was that the equipment was so efficient that we were generating so much information that it would take us six months to analyze it. And so I brought in an entire informatics team, people from all over the world to analyze uh, what we were getting from the equipment. And as we were doing that, of course, the equipment was getting more and more efficient, smaller, uh, less expensive. We were paying, I remember I paid a million dollars for our first terabyte of data here. And now it's what, $16 in the cloud or, or less. And, and what we began to discover was that in genomics at least, um, once the, the genome was mapped, uh, we, we had knowledge and information that allowed us to begin to look um, fairly efficiently at what may be contributing to specific types of diseases. Of course, 
at that time, um, because it was so new, there was always the question of could the, could the scientific research be replicated? Could it be done in some other capacity? Could you get the same answers if you tried it a different way or the same way? And so um, both in proteomics and in genomics at the time, it was a little bit like the Wild West. Uh, they were, we were getting papers published and we were getting things done that were really ground, groundbreaking and, and very uh, important. Um, but then there was always the challenge of can this be replicated? Is this something that uh, is happening and being um, agreed to across the scientific community? And so as the science has matured and as has more and more and more data has been collected uh, and stored, uh, I, I can say now that we're still probably 15 or 20 years ahead of where um, some of the medical schools are relative to the findings and the things that we're working with and discovering in terms of it being turned into translational medicines being used at the bedside. Yeah, so that's something I noticed a lot in the medical field, right? There's always um, um, a lag. A lag, yeah, between the innovations that happen in the university centers and the research and the actual applications. Why? Why do you think people are maybe slower to adopt these technologies? Yeah, I think you know it goes. It goes back to you know first do no harm, and um, and so there always have there always seems to have to be huge quantities of people involved in in uh, the testing and the experimentation before it's considered you know, mainstream. And, and one of the challenges that I've found with medicine in its current state is that you know, there is a level of, of, of failure that's almost considered collateral damage sometimes. And, uh, and so we know, for example, in pharmacogenomics, we can tell you if a medicine will work or won't work or whether it'll kill you. And in many cases, we have absolute um, factual data that substantiates that to the maximum level, uh, but it's not being taught in the medical schools. And so we still practice the old practice of titrating. You know, here's the medicine, let's try a little bit more, let's try a little bit more, did your hair fall out, did your leg come off, whatever. I'm being facetious, obviously, but but uh, we, we go through that process and then, and miss the opportunity to apply that science directly to that patient because now we have that capability of doing actual precision testing that shows how you will metabolize the medication you're taking from the 300 genes that do that process for us. And so what we've done instead is said, okay, well, we put this through a 180,000 or 280,000 person trial and only 5% of the people died, so that's acceptable. Uh, whereas we could say, hey, nobody died because we did a pharmacogenomics test and we could tell you definitively that that drug will not work for that individual or it will harm that individual. And it's good for the pharmaceutical companies and it's good for the patients and it's good for the physicians. I mean, I jokingly infer that probably the best way to get this introduced in American medical uh, society is by teaching it to the attorneys first. <laughs> because it will make people cognizant of the fact that that those that those um, tests do exist. Mm, makes sense. And would you say for the approvals, because I'm looking at genomics and I'm guessing, I, I, I'm not sure here, right? So that's what I'm going to ask you. Um, if you're looking at DNA, do you need a larger sample than usual to be able to get what you're trying for that specific segment? Or 
is the are the number of cases you have to try the same as in regular medicine? Is it any different working in that realm? I would say so. Let me let me say this is without breaking your microphone. I am not a scientist. I am not a physician. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be quoted on anything that deals clinically in that sense. I mean, I, I I don't know the answers to these kinds of scientific questions. I will tell you that. Uh, there is a, a nuanced difference in, for example, in pharmacogenomics testing. What I've discovered is that if you're a commercial organization that is that is uh, concentrating on pharmacogenomics testing, where you're looking at those 300 genes, it's economically more viable for you to look at a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. It's economically more viable for you to have equipment that allows you to look at a SNP. But because I run research institutes, we look at the entire gene and we see, again, nuanced differences that could impact that SNP. And so whenever I recommend someone have a pharmacogenomics test, I recommend that they use a center that looks at the entire gene instead of looking at just that SNP. Now, in terms of numbers, that's where it goes back to once you get your pharmacogenomics test outcome, the last 10 or 20 pages will show you how much data they have on it, how much was uh, was institutionalized from the standpoint of, it will demonstrate to you that that there is you know four stars worth of knowledge on that, and so you can count on it. But if there's only one star worth of knowledge, you may say, ah, I don't know if that's definitive enough. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's interesting because what you bring up, there's a whole trend now with 23andMe and all these tests you can do at home. And it's interesting when you think about it because people don't really differentiate. To them, a DNA test is a DNA test. I, I don't think consumers are aware that there really is a, a difference in the quality of the information you'll get. Yeah, and at the risk of being sued by any one of those companies, <laughs> I can say that I think that they have, I've read somewhere that they can have as much as a 40% miss rate. Mm. Uh, I've had my... I've had my own pharmacogenomics test done twice. Uh, one at a full research lab that does uh, the full gene and one that does SNPs. And, and there were some differences between them, but overall the outcome was, it was similar enough that it steered me away from certain harmful, certain drugs that would be harmful for me. You know, let, let me give you an example. So, so this whole opioid crisis is going on there are some people that can't metabolize those drugs and so it never reaches a level in your body that's analgesic it never reaches the level where you're reducing the pain because you can't process that drug and so those people sometimes are identified as you know over drug users or those kinds of things and it's because they've never had any relief from the pain so you know another example we're doing research right now with uh with uh, the Clinical and Translational Genome Research Institute in Florida that I, that I started. We're doing research with the Children's Specialized Hospital in New Jersey on ADHD medications. And I have had personal experience with a child with ADHD who tried multiple drugs and, and in that process was switched on and off to generic drugs. And the impact, the difference that it made was, was phenomenal in terms of how that child reacted, whether they lost weight, whether they lost their, their ability, they didn't want to eat, whether they were nervous, whether all these different things impacted them. So we're doing studies on what drug would work best for an ADHD child. And uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, that that 
topic can be controversial to people that don't believe, but I believe because I've been there and I've seen it. Yeah, and I think that that's an interesting point that you raise because a lot of the innovations often are about things that don't exist yet. But in this sense, you're looking at genomics to help use existing medications, things that already are out there in society that could be helpful, but it's more of finding that match. So it's creating value out of something um, not, not completely from scratch. Yeah, it's precision. It's, it's the difference between this is the, these are the masses and, and this worked for a certain percentage of the masses. So go ahead and try this. I mean, the, the doctors, the, the, the physicians who have embraced pharmacogenomics, and I'm specifically talking about pharmacogenomics today because I think it's the least controversial subject uh, because, you know, with genetics, there are still all those ethical issues that I know you're going to explore in this podcast. And, and there are still all those issues relative to you know, insurance companies and employers and all those things that people have to work through. But with pharmacogenomics, it's 300 genes. It's not 30,000 genes. And, and it's the specific genes that metabolize, you know, help you metabolize these medicines. And, and you know, the field of nutrigenomics is another one that's going to be coming forth in a way that it will make sense. So that what foods work with your genetic makeup. And so when you start to look at an individual and realize that genetically, if, if all of us in the room would take the same pill, we might all react differently to it rather than going through the titrating process and seeing if it works. I had a, I had a brother and a, two good friends who died from their medication. And they were cognizant of the fact that they were not responding appropriately. And they indicated that, but their healthcare providers didn't give them the test because it wasn't part of their quiver of arrows. They weren't taught in medical school I took my own pharmacogenomics test into my specialist that I work with, and his response was, wow, this tells me everything I needed to know. Why didn't I know this? And I'm going, yeah, I don't know. Because it's reached a level where it should become a, a part of what we're doing in, in medicine because it's specialized to the point of precision medicine, and it tells you this works for you. I, you know, I, my sad personal story, my brother, was admitted for a simple outpatient back procedure and, and told them that he did not respond well to um, pain meds. And they said, oh, we'll, we'll manage that, we'll take care of that. And I said, can you give them a pharmacogenomics test? They said, no, we don't do that. And they overdosed him and couldn't bring him back. And by the time they brought him back, his kidneys were, they were destroyed. And so 95 days later, the multiple complications that came from all that, he died. And I'm thinking, would a $150 or $300 test have, have been a test that saved him? And, and I can give you sample after example after example. There's a physician in this building who has um, um, an eye problem. And he took a medication for that eye problem. And his doctor said, why don't you try the generic? It's less expensive. He tried the generic. He had such a violent reaction to the generic that now he can't even use the other one that he originally used. And so when you, when you look at what can happen when it's not attuned to your particular genetic profile, uh, that's problematic. And, and you were mentioning it's not, it's, first of all, it's not that expensive. And on the flip side, even if you're looking at uh, maybe education for the doctors, it's not even that time consuming, right, no. to teach this? No. How, how long is the course of course. like that? It could be a course. It could be a, at their own pace course. And, and you know, I'm on the board of trustees of a university. And one of the things I'm 
pushing through that university is that they will offer these courses to pharmacists. Think about it. Now, I know that one of the Pittsburgh universities is finally offering this to their pharmacy school, but it's like it should be just natural, normal. I mean, I walk into my pharmacist and I show them my pharmacogenomics test and they say, well, that that generic drug is not going to work for you. Well, that's a nice thing to know. And so um, I, I think it's a time, it's a transition time. I mean, you know, penicillin was discovered in 1927, but it wasn't in common use till 1944. And what about that gap between 27 and 44? What, and I don't know the answer to this, so please, all you intellectuals who do, don't, <laughs> don't judge me. But, you know, what about that time? And, and it was that, that whole challenge of, if it's scientifically relevant, how can we move it from the lab table to the bedside? How can we actually do translational medicine in a way that's effectively helping the patients? And that's been my passion. My passion is to, is to get out there with this information and try to have people embrace it in a way that they understand it's just to be helpful. Even the pharmaceutical companies should embrace this because it's not condemning anything they're doing. It's simply directing the patient toward the drug that works best for them as opposed to having a lawsuit because it didn't work. So know? what if you tried another angle? And I don't, I don't know if you've thought about this, but there's a very big trend in terms of consumerism, um, you know, health consumerism. So people who take their own health in their own hands, you see it with the quantified self and all these trends. Would you imagine now, okay, yeah, you're sending your, you know, to a lab a request, you're getting your results. Could there be a, a course for you Consumers. as an individual to, to know what works or not? So you might take ownership and leadership and be able to maybe enter a discussion with a doctor or a pharmacist and tell them you know what from the profile in my understanding these are some limitations can we sit down and talk before i take this drug yeah i think one of the challenges is the doctor has to approve it and some of the physicians have approached this in a way that you know okay so you've been my patient for 20 years and when i started you on zocor i had none of this knowledge and when i read your pharmacogenomics profile in Zocor, it says that if you take this, you could have a myocardial infarction. And in fact, you almost did. So am I gonna be blamed because I had you on a drug that was not the right drug for you? So I think there's that, the litigious side of healthcare in America in the medical industrial complex that puts us in a, a bind uh, because the physicians don't wanna be blamed for having put you on something that wasn't effective for you or that was detrimental for you and so there's another mountain to climb mm -hmm. and uh, and I'm not sure uh, how that works I, I you know in terms of offering it to the public you have to get a physician to agree to receive the report and um, luckily I look for physicians that agree that's how I do my health care I mean I make sure that whatever physician I'm working with understands that there's science out there that they weren't necessarily exposed to uh, that could be helpful to my care and so I get cooperating physicians so that could be a way uh, that could work and I, listen I this is not a wrap against physicians in any way shape or form no, of course. I mean this is basically they're you know they're doing what they've learned to do and, and it was the best that there was available at that time I, I will tell you that the, the physicians who have embraced this most uh, completely so far have been the psychiatrist because they see such a dramatic response to drugs that when they're trying drugs with different um, psych psychiatric care, 
where you can give a patient a drug that's supposed to help them with schizophrenia or whatever, and in fact, it magnifies it. And so they, they have found peace from saying, okay, is this patient gonna respond well to this drug? Because I don't wanna give them something that's gonna set them up and set them off. And so the psychiatrists have been, I think, the most open to, uh, uh, to pharmacogenomics. But you know, that's just one aspect of this, just one facet of it. So, so I hear education, I hear um, the idea of the, the legal aspect, and I think there's also funding as a third roadblock, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, like if you're put on warfarin, if you're put on you know, certain drugs, the, the, pharmaceutical, the, the uh, insurance companies require you to get this test, but just for that drug. Hmm. And they'll pay for that test for that drug. Because, you know, if you, if you can't tolerate Coumadin and you're going to bleed out from it, they want to know that. And so they'll pay for that one. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll give you a, a perfect example. I, I have a an anomaly, I have a, a gene, a genetic anomaly that doesn't allow me to process certain types of drugs uh, that 94% of people don't have. And so when I take my Crestor, the chances of, of responding to that in a normal way are suppressed. So it's not as effective for me as it would be for another person. So out of the 180,000 or 200,000 people that were tested on it, I would be one of those that, that wouldn't work as well for. And, uh, and so having that knowledge, then you can choose alternatives in many cases. Now, in some cases, there aren't good alternatives. Some cases, you, you're at the best drug there is. There's no other drug that'll do what it does. And so, you know, just live with it. But uh, in many cases, yeah. You know, for example, if I, heaven forbid, if I were suffering from cancer right now, uh, I would wanna know what um, what drug I would respond best to if I'm going to be put on a chemotherapy drug. And I'll give you a sad example. I had a uh, former employee from this facility who was diagnosed uh, with breast cancer. And she called me and she said, I don't know if I should go to blank or blank for care. Uh, she wanted to go to one of the top cancer centers. So I checked with, with the doctor that I work with most closely in the cancer care program and he said, either one of them the ones closer, she might as well go there. So I said to her, you should get a pharmacogenomics test before you go so that you have some idea what oncology drug would work best for you. I worked with a, an administrator in that particular facility. He lined her up with the top surgeon, the top oncologist, the top reconstructive surgeon. She had everything and he made the appointments for her. It was perfect. She went through everything. 18 months later, she sent me a text and she said, you never believe it. My cancer came back at exactly the same spot where I had it originally. And I said, did you take the pharmacogenomics test? And she didn't have money, so she paid out of her own pocket for the $300 test. She said, I did. And I told the oncologist that it said that I would not respond to the drug he was putting me on. But he said, no, no, honey, it'll be fine. Clearly it wasn't fine. Uh, she didn't respond to that drug, no. Could it have been any other thing? Again, clinically, I'm not a doc. I don't have any idea. You know, I may be completely off base. I apologize to all of you who are, you know, more knowledgeable about this than I am. But it seems to me that if he had looked at her pharmacogenomics test and looked at what drug options, now it's complex, I understand, in oncology because there are so many protocols and so many different types of drugs. And I understand it's really complex, but it sounded like he just brushed it off because he didn't have knowledge in that area. And that, that makes me sad because she's back in treatment now, getting radiation and going.
going through another surgery and doing all these things. And I just, I think our time has come. And I think that, you know, the, it was interesting because I made a presentation three years ago to a group of very prominent physicians. And two of the physicians there, it literally, they came just short of saying, if man was meant to fly, he would have been born with wings. I mean, that's how resistant they were to even having information about this. So I don't know all the nuances of why there's pushback. I don't, I don't think it's, in nutrigenomics, I understand it because it's still not, it's not as sophisticated as science. It's like the microbiome. We know that the microbiome is, is completely contributing to many, many, many things that we're dealing with. Um, but we, but there are, you know, a, a, a trillion microbes and we, and we haven't scratched the surface yet of all of that. Uh, so, you know, so we have fecal transplants, but beyond that, the microbiome is in fact the gold rush in science right now. It's like, what have we done to our bodies by consuming the non-food that we consume in this country? And, and, and by using all the hand sanitizers that had all of the, you know, the lethal uh, um, chemicals in them that killed everything as opposed to you know, alcohol. And so what have we done that's changed our microbiome that now we have you know, rampant uh, food allergies and you know, what's going on relative to our bodies and our microbiome and we don't know. But um, that's where you know, genetics was 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago. But it continues to mature. You know, I, I work in integrative medicine as well, and I have physicians that say I won't allow anybody to receive acupuncture. And I said, look, there are 19,000 papers written on the efficacy of acupuncture now, and it works for a lot of people. So it can't hurt you, even if you do it wrong. It releases endorphins. You know, so why is this resistance? And I think it's that you know, do no harm. And I think this is an interesting point you bring because you have a career where it's based on basically innovating, on challenging the status quo, on bringing what's best for the patient in environments that sometimes were, were difficult to navigate. Mm -hmm. What are your tips or the, the things that you've learned that really can help change mindsets? Like how do you get your foot in the door and convince people that might not even be open to discuss in the first place? You know, it's interesting because I had an opportunity to uh, put in a, a breast care center. And one of the things that I did was I invited all of the breast cancer survivors that I could get to come and meet with me at once and to discuss all of the negative things that they experienced during their care. And we took copious notes of all of those negative things. And when we had the architects in, we designed all of those things out of the new model. So as you know, and the audience doesn't know, I have a background in music. I have a master's degree in trumpet. And I approached my work in science as a musician more so than as a scientist because I'm not one. And I looked at it in a different way. And, and I challenged ideas because the ideas that I saw being utilized did not marry the ideas that I saw in the rest of the world on many other levels. And, and it started slowly where I would say, why do you do it this way? You know, I'll give you a great example. There were, you know, 80% of the people that worked for me were women and the vast majority of the decision makers in healthcare are women, but we were not catering to them in a way that made sense. And so it's like, okay, if these women are the decision makers, why wouldn't we soften this environment? Why wouldn't we have it more 
relaxing and home-like and, and spa-like and hotel-like? And why wouldn't we do things that it's not pandering, but it's just making it more comfortable for them? And why wouldn't we ask them what their ideas and their opinions were? There was a great book out uh, many years ago called um, Change or Die. I don't know if you ever heard of it. But it talks about how you introduce change. And it's participatory involvement. It's getting people to become stakeholders. It's getting them to understand that there's knowledge here that could be helpful to them and not harmful. You know, it, it can't it can't be confrontational. People aren't gonna change unless they feel that they have a part in it, that they believe in it, and it's something that will be helpful. But if it's gonna hurt them or hurt their family or hurt their future, they're not gonna participate. And so, you know, with the physician situation, a lot of what they have to deal with is that they are inundated every day. There are a million studies a year coming out. They can't possibly keep up and all that. And people are confronting them every day with newspaper articles and, well, what about this doc? What about that? Well, what about my aunt said to do this and my aunt? And so they are inundated with this. And it's important that we find ways to get dialogue between the scientists, and which is what we did here, and the physicians that allowed them to understand how it comes together in ways that helps them. And so change is something that um, it, it takes buy-in and it takes in incremental steps, but you can get there. How, how do people create this space? Because I look at a typical doctor's day and from uh, what I understand, they run from one room to the other and they're writing their reports really, you know, 12 hours later and they yeah. have to remember everyone that they saw. And six hours sleep or less. How, how do you bring a dialogue in, a, in an environment that's so stressful, that has so many you know, things contingent on their time already? Yeah, what I do is I walk in with my reports and I say, let's talk about this. But I'm different because I have access to it. I'll give you an example. When I first retired from this place, I decided I was going to move to another area and I decided I was going to go to a new doctor in a new hospital. And I got a call after my big full physical and he said, everything's great except you have the beginning of kidney failure. And I said, well, that's not great. The beginning of kidney failure is not great. My mother, my grandmother died of kidney failure. He said, well, we'll keep an eye on it. And I said, you know, myself, it's like, that's not good enough. Now, I had a friend, an email friend, who was a very prominent physician at a very prominent medical center who I had contacted in the past over And I sent him this information. And he said, send me your list of drugs. So I sent him the list of drugs. And about two weeks later, he contacted me. He said, when you take this drug with this drug, it's causing kidney failure in your body that combination will cause kidney failure and i said how did you know that he said it was two papers just came out of canada he says and they were brand new and they just came out and my researchers found them so i was in a unique position to save my kidneys and i got my doctor to change to another drug and the kidney re re reversed itself so it, it, it you have to be your own advocate And you have to understand that it's not a bad thing to get second opinions. And you have to understand that there is science out there that's real, and then there is internet science, which is bogus a lot of times, you know, that doesn't make sense. And you have to be able to talk to people that can help you sort through that. What are the credible sources? Yeah, don't ask me. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really funny because I remember trying to Uh, convince a scientist to work with our scientific team here. Uh, she was in the far west and and when I left I knew somebody that knew her and I said why did she reject this? 
He said, because she looked you up on PubMed and you don't have any publications. Well, PubMed is a source that's really a good source, but I'm not a doctor, so I wasn't on PubMed. So she didn't see me as an authoritarian speaker. I mean, I was a master's degree. I didn't have a double master, but I didn't have a PhD and I wasn't an MD. So she didn't consider me to be a source that was reliable. So for you to ask me, uh, you need to talk to the professionals, talk to the MDs, talk to the PhDs, because there, there are communication networks where they can do this. And you know, one of the things that I found is I loved my docs. I had great docs and I loved working with them. I loved the interaction with them. And for the most part, they were very, very open-minded. And if you could present them with information that made sense, they would come on board. It, it wasn't like they were throwing me out in the street. You know, it, only if you approach them in a threatening manner, in a uh, angry manner, and you know, th those, those are the kind of things that just people shut down. But you know, one of the things here I, I, I'll brag about is that we had one of the lowest um, uh, lawsuit rates in the country, probably in the world. And when people ask me how that happened, it was, I attributed to transparency. People appreciate transparency. They appreciate honesty. They appreciate, even if you make a mistake, they'll forgive you if in fact it was a mistake that was a valid mistake, not just something that you did that was because you were drinking or something. I mean, you know, if it was an actual mistake, they will forgive you. And transparency is an important thing. And I think if you're transparent with your physician and you question the physician, and you can give them some source that gives them information, I think they'll be responsive to it. I, I can see the challenge when you're talking about transparency and at the same time the legal system. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's yes. quite a conundrum there. I, I think there's another thing that you did really right with the center, and it's um, to do with this idea of longitudinal study. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that was an accident. Um, whenever I conceived of this, uh, it was in involvement with the military because I had access to, in those days, an earmark. And by utilizing the military, you had access to them for their entire career. And so, in some cases, that was a 20 or more year career. And that created the longitudinal studies that were heretofore not available. So the other thing that happened was that our physician was in charge of surgery for his hospital and he was in charge of the residency program. So he, in fact, could train the residents. He created a 40-page protocol on how to harvest the tissue that we're using here, and he trained those residents. So when they went to Longstow and all the other military bases, they were trained in how to, to harvest these, these tissue. And, and we found in, in the old method, you know, the surgeon does the surgery, he throws the biopsy into a you know stainless steel pan. They take it over. The pathologist throws it on his table, cuts a slice off he needs, looks at it, throws the rest in a red bag. We found what we needed to do was preserve it immediately, was to uh, make sure that everything was treated in a pristine, incredibly sterile environment, that everything was iced and packed appropriately, shipped appropriately, handled appropriately, and so. All of that contributed. It wasn't just the longitudinal information. We also were able to hire nurses and nurse practitioners to do demographic studies with each donor. So we had, at that time, 800 fields of demographic information on each donor. And so 
I could literally sit at my keyboard and say, good morning, ladies. Um, how many of you drink coffee? And it would go. So that's interesting because you're bringing the idea of lifestyle too. So it's not just about the genes. It's about, you know, maybe the pollution in your city, what activities you do. Lifestyle for me was key because I went through a program in coronary coronary care, cardiac care, called the Dean Ornish Coronary Disease Reversal Program. And we introduced that program in a way that uh, was very um, meaningful to me because it was diet, exercise, stress management, and group support. And when we introduced that program, it was part of a research project But, but you had to have You're listening to Healthcare Focus and I'm your host Karina Paraskeev. Healthcare Focus is the podcast where we follow healthcare news and industry research so you don't have to. All right, so we had a little phone call come in but back from uh, the intermate here. Yeah, so basically what began to happen with this program is that not only were people relieved of their angina pain and and were they they got their lives back. So their psychological profile improved exponentially and stayed improved because these were people that couldn't typically walk across the room without chest pain. And by doing diet, exercise, stress management, and group support, they began having these phenomenal uh, health uh, improvements and losing weight and eating appropriately and whatever. But the thing that was most astonishing to me was they all had to be accompanied by a support member, whether it was a spouse or a friend or whatever. And we had numerous female uh, attendees who participated in the program, but who came here with an autoimmune disease unbeknownst to us. And by participating in this program, their autoimmune diseases went into remission. And they would hug me and thank me. And it was like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, I went on the program with, with my husband, diet, exercise, stress management, group support, and my autoimmune disease has been in remission. And it was like, wow, so that's an important thing. And so when I was the CEO here, I'm, I encouraged that all of our scientific research include aspects of behavioral modification. And so we could literally uh, do testing where we do, a, you know, we do a blood drop, Uh, we would bring in uh, 30 people and 15 of the control group, you know, of the 30 in the control group. And, and we would look at their genetic profile and whether the genes were upregulated, downregulated. And, and then we would stress them. Uh, we would say, okay, let's put this puzzles together. And we'd whisper in your ear, the guy beside you is doing better than you are. And man, that's terrible. You should see what they're doing at that other room. We'd stress them. And then the control group would just go and read the paper, do whatever they want to do, sit in a room. And the other group, in this case, went in and, and made music. None of them were musicians. And then we do the blood test at the end and find out that the people who weren't musicians that went in and worked, played pianos and did things together, that their stress levels were lower and that their, the gene profile demonstrated that. And it was like, wow, that, that's pretty phenomenal. And so we were able to introduce these challenging Uh, behavioral modification issues into the research that we were doing here at the time. And I don't think that's still going on, but it was great for me because as a musician, I loved it. 
is um, it very unique or is yeah this that was very unique okay so is does the trend right now in pharma or you know out there in the research centers are they looking into lifestyle too is, or is this a completely different branch from just researching can't answer that i can't answer i would think it's unique i don't i don't know that that's something that's being done you can check with your listeners but i don't think that that's a, a normal approach to this thing i don't think that behavioral modification is typically built into but you know having gotten passionate about that we started seeing studies where after breast cancer if if the woman is part of a support group their average lifestyle might be as much as five years longer and two years ago i had an opportunity to work at an integrative cancer center which almost sounds like a oxymoron uh, because the guy was given chemo and it was an integrative but when you walked in uh, he had kitchens where he taught the people how to cook vegetarian meals, etc. He had physical therapists where they exercised throughout their care and he mapped their circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I, I have friends who are diabetics who will tell you that certain times of the day when they give themselves an injection, their body is more receptive than other times of the day. And so he found that with the chemos, the same thing existed. So he could give less chemotherapy and get these amazing results. Well, if you get a drug that gives you a three-month extension on your life, that's considered a blockbuster drug. He was getting 54 months extensions on stage four cancers by using circadian rhythm, vegetarian diets, physical therapy. I mean, it was just an amazing thing. Now, why hasn't this blossomed and going worldwide? Um, it's a slow-moving, it's like, you know, what they say, turning around an aircraft carrier. You know, and I don't know if it ever will. But it's been amazing. It's been okay, amazing. so so talking of airplanes, can I take our listeners to this last destination, which is a different continent? Can you talk to me about the crime lab? So we've seen that genomics can really be a superhero um, when you're looking at maybe even preventing medicine, but mostly being able to identify the, the different medicine that works with your particular body. What about solving you know, forensic crimes? Yeah, I'm the least qualified person in the world to talk about this, but let me tell you what I know. Sure. Uh, so at one point when we were looking at alternative forms of income because you, you never knew whether the government was going to be able to continue doing it just like going to shut down right now as, as I'm making a recording uh, you know uh, I was looking at alternatives for all this equipment that I had because I had millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment and it was like gee maybe we could become a crime lab because I kept reading these statistics about how rape kits weren't being processed and things weren't being done and, and it was like gee we had the ability to handle you know hundreds dozens of those in in a day as opposed to months and years and whatever and so uh, and so I interviewed uh, the former head of a, a major probably the one of the most active crime labs in the country and I asked him about you know the nuances of what we were dealing with and he told me this story about a town in uh, Florida that got a grant and in this grant every time they arrested someone they took a cheek swab and they found that the rate of recidivism for the criminals was exponential. It's like the same 12 guys were committing all the crimes, you know, but they identified that through genetic testing. Like, you know, they pick up a Coke can or a cigarette butt or whatever, and it was the same people. Now, obviously the ACLU and everybody else would have, you know, American Civil Liberties Union would have their problems with this, but it's my understanding that in, in Europe that that is not un, unusual to get a, a cheek swab of the criminal, so you could see if it's the same one. And so I have a my former chief scientific officer from here, 
is now setting up crime labs in Africa to help genetically determine, you know, uh, who's connected to what and what's going on. And he's having, a, from my understanding, he's having a great field day with that in terms of setting these labs up and being very successful at it. They're actually physically building the labs and putting them in place. So, you know, when you look at, you know, when you watch the TV shows, it's, it's glorified. It's kind of like watching the TV doctor shows. You know, there's a, no, and it's the same thing watching the TV band director movies where they're not directing the right way and you go, oh, man, this is a scam. <laughs> but, but the reality is, you know, science is progressing so fast and so hard in these areas that it, it seems to me that, you know, it, it will be, we are probably five years away from all physician offices having their own genetic testing capabilities. The big challenge right now is that we're not training laboratory technologists, we're not training uh, pharmacists, we're not training other people in these arenas. And so as a college board trustee, that's one of the things I'm pushing. Okay, so let me ask you this last question then. Yeah. Um, and you've partly answered, but for a fuller answer, is it too early to invest in genomics? Uh, I think you're on the okay side of it now. I think when 23andMe got shut down, that would have been a really scary time because they had gone too far, too fast without permission in terms of what they got shut down for. Or they got a letter from the FDA saying you can't do this stuff. Uh, and then they got it corrected and they're doing it. But I think that, um, I, think we're on the, I think we're on the right side of it. I mean, right below us is a for-profit uh, forensics lab, crime lab, and a for-profit pharmacogenomics lab And um, they're having the same challenges that I've had in terms of breaking in, but uh, I, I think that um, we're five years away. That's my prediction. Great. So buy marijuana in Canada and genetics worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> It was great, great having you, Nick. Thank Thanks. you so, so much. Thank you. Good luck. In just one moment, we are going to share with you what's coming in our next episode. But if you think others just like you might enjoy this podcast, help us spread the word. Give us a quick rating, write us a review, or just share with a couple of friends. Next episode, we are taking you on a special field trip. We're going to go behind the scenes of a research institute. Stella Somieri will be our guide. She's the senior director at Winber Research Institute, and she will help us discover biobanking and what it's like to be on the team that first set an ISO standard in a nascent field. That's up next on Healthcare Focus.